0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi, probably the easiest to find of the minor prophets. He is a post-exilic prophet and the last of the writing prophets before the time of the New Testament. So if you can find Matthew in the New Testament and turn back just a few pages, you can find Malachi. Uh, And uh, we are beginning a new study today as we we go through Malachi. Again, as I said, he's a post-exilic prophet. Uh, and very much looking forward to the work that the Lord will do. Uh, The name Malachi means my messenger, and he uh, foretells as we get to the end of this book of the messenger who will come to prepare the way for the Lord, John the Baptist. He foretells John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus. Uh, But one of the features that you'll notice as we make our way through Malachi uh, that is unique about this book is the disputations that we find that structure all of the prophecy. Uh, We we might even call them disagreements because six separate times in distinct places in Malachi, the Lord makes a statement or he makes a claim to or about his people. And uh, and every time his people return with, what do you mean by that? Uh, How so? Uh, Prove it. Uh, And so there is a disagreement between the Lord and his people. And we'll see that in six separate sections. The first disputation shows up. In verses 2 through 5, so today we're going to be looking at that introductory verse and also the, uh, the rest of the first five verses. So Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 today. And before we read this text together, let's go and seek the Lord in the illuminating power of His Holy Spirit among His people. Let's pray. Well, oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank You for Your messenger. We thank You for this word that You give and have given to Israel and now give to us. We pray that we would be faithful as we hear it, that you by your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words, would also enliven our hearts, enlarge our understanding of you to trust and to believe all the promises that you have for your people. Thank you for this word. As we study Malachi, we pray that you would edify us and glorify yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll hear now God's word as we find it in the prophecy of Malachi, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. As far as the reading of God's holy an inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, in uh, in the late 90s, I had one. Chances are that you might have had one as well. I was a teenager coming to faith in American evangelicalism, and as a sign declaring my tribe to the world, I had one of those Uh, black nylon straps wrapped around my wrist, emblazoned with those four powerful letters, WWJD. Uh, What would Jesus do? The question that marked a generation, this Christian phenomenon that became a cultural fad in the 90s, and suddenly you saw it everywhere and in the least likely of places. Uh, Despite its uh, cultural relevance in the 90s, it actually came, the phrase came, the question came uh, from a book that was already about 100 years old at the time. Uh, It was in 1896 that Charles Sheldon wrote his novel, In His Steps, a fictional work uh, about a story in in which a Christian pastor is confronted outside of a worship service by a homeless man. This homeless man wonders what the world would be like if, if all these Christians paid more attention to living like Jesus than they paid attention to sitting in nice churches and singing nice songs and consuming nice things. Well, in this story, it is the homeless man who asks that question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do about homelessness? About tenement housing? What would Jesus do about joblessness and drunkenness, what would Jesus do about the problems of the inner city or the developing country? What, what if people, uh, Jesus' people began doing what Jesus might have done? And could you imagine what the world could look like if we did? Well, there are probably any number of critiques we could offer to the WWJD movement. Uh, least of all, we might talk about the uh, Uh, The overzealous merchandising. Uh, We might want to talk about the very shallow soteriology, the doctrine that uh, really is uh, about more of of Christian moralism than it is offering salvation to sinners. Any number of critiques we might want to make to the movement as it was. Uh, But I think far uh, far more importantly, the most important corrective we could offer is the, uh, the need to take our cues from the actual savior rather than from our own guesses about our own situation. Daniel Shore is a literature professor from Georgetown University, and he wrote that the power of the WWJD movement is summarized in the switch from what he calls the indicative to the subjunctive. In other words, the power resides in the switch from asking, what did Jesus do to what would Jesus do? What might he do? What could he have done if he were in your shoes? And in that way, it becomes a thought experiment, a thought to move from uh, Jesus as we find him, uh, the one pursuing the salvation of his people with with the sacrifice of his own life, to the the one who does good for people and the one who can show you how to do good too. Doing good isn't a bad thing, of course, but, but when we ask the question in this way, it becomes a thought experiment, a way of crossing a divide of, of time and space in in which Jesus actually lived in an attempt to make his life seem more relevant to our lives rather than less in other words it's a way of taking Jesus out of the scriptures and moving him into our circumstances that is uh, as Josh Rothman points out precisely where the movement went from being a moral challenge to offering moral license he asks how useful is it to ask what would Jesus do as it turns out very useful, because often you find that Jesus would do whatever you were inclined to do anyway. The point is that rather than asking you to come to Jesus, the question asks Jesus to come to you. It's always dangerous, isn't it, when we come to God with our expectations of what we think he ought to be about, looming larger than what he's told us he's actually doing. It's dangerous when we evaluate God's love and His mercy and His greatness and His goodness according to our standards rather than according to His own. That was the lesson that Israel needed to learn in Malachi's day. It is still the lesson that we need to learn today. To come to the Lord seeking what He reveals about Himself more than what we would like Him to be about. Today we're going to see this passage unfold uh, with God's help in two points. First, seeing from this text God's love spoken, and secondly, seeing God's mercy shown. God's love spoken, and God's mercy shown. We begin with uh, the Lord who speaks love. The book of Malachi begins uh, the same predictable way that any number of other prophetic books begin in the Bible, and that is to say that it begins by telling us that this book is different. These words are unlike the things that you're going to find in all of the human arguments and all of the human articles that you come into contact with a a thousand times in your mundane life. These words are powerful. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, it is practically a warning label. You go out to dinner and you go to the Mexican restaurant and you order the fajitas. And out they come on that sizzling cast iron skillet, and it's got the steak and the chicken uh, and the peppers and the onions. And the waiter comes with that insulated glove up to his forearm, and he brings it, and you can almost smell the heat coming off of your entree. And he sets it down in front of you, and what does he say? Be careful, it's very hot. The oracle of the word of the Lord. To Israel through Malachi, take care how you handle this. This is not some paper plate that you can can grab and hold on to and do whatever you want with. There's a lot of good to be said for these older translations that remind us that the word that shows up in our text as oracle really has an idea of heaviness to it. Very similar to the idea of God's glory in the Old Testament. God's glory in the Old Testament is his weightiness. It is his gravitas. God's glory is the crater that is left on the hearts of human clay when God impresses his majesty into their lives. And so it is here with this idea of an oracle. There is a weightiness to it. And so the older translations tell us literally this is the burden It is the burden of the word of the Lord, and it comes to humanity through the mouth of a human prophet, but the message is not diminished by the smallness of the messenger. This word is every ounce as divine, as if it had been thundered there on Mount Sinai, or as if the Lord had spoken it out of the clouds in the Mount of Transfiguration. The word is spoken from a human tongue. It's written down by a human hand, but it carries with it the weight of God's authority. And so the little sister goes out into the front yard and declares to her siblings that mom says it's time to come in. And there's authority behind those words, beyond the little sister. And so too the holy men of old spoke as they were carried along by God's Spirit. And as they were carried along by God's Spirit, they spoke words of life and death words of cursing and blessing, words of judgment and salvation, words of grace and glory, and they did so in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And before we get any further into this prophecy, it is imperative that we recognize what it is that our ears and our hearts are handling today. This is not the sermon where I camp out for all 40 minutes on the first verse. You may be relieved to find that, but it is imperative that we stop and recognize, dear believer, do you know what it is that we're doing when we open God's scriptures together? Do you handle this word with care as it ought to be handled? Have you understood the seriousness and the immensity of receiving a message from the God of the universe every time we open his word together, every time the word is preached in your hearing. Have you found in God's word from Malachi the prophet, from Revelation and Romans and Genesis and Isaiah, have you found in God's word the smelling salts that your drowsy soul needs to be awakened to the glory and goodness of your Savior? Or has God's word perhaps become sleepy and familiar to you like a cup of decaf tea? Has the sword of God's word stopped slicing you open by now? Has it stopped revealing the sins that need to be removed and the wounds that the Lord still desires to bandage in your life? The Hebrews tells us that long ago, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. He's spoken to us in these last days through his son, but he spoke through the prophets, and that means this is God's word. This is God's word to Israel, and this is God's word preserved by His Spirit and passed down through generations so that you can read it. This is God's word to Israel. This is God's word to you. Which means we dare not separate the wake-up call of verse 1 from the declaration of verse 2. This is the word of the Lord, says Malachi. This is the burden that he has to share with his people. But what is the burden? What is this weighty message? What does the Lord have to say? He has to say, I have loved you, declares the Lord. There's a context here. There's an argument here. And we're going to get to the argument in just a moment. But for a minute, just sit with that opening line. I have loved you, declares the Lord. That is the beginning of this letter to his beloved. And the Lord is not speaking this in the past tense. He's not saying that I used to love you. He's saying that this is something that continues. It is a present perfect. It's a completed action that continues down into the future. As the New Living Translation has it, I have always loved you. When Yahweh declares his love, he is declaring the primary bond of faithfulness that has characterized his dealings with his people from the very beginning. And how do we know that? We know that because the Lord is speaking to Israel, to the people gathered under the covenant name. And here is where we need to get into a bit of the history of this passage and the text that we have before us. We don't know much about Malachi the man. But from all the clues that we have, we find in his prophecy that that he did most likely minister after the exile, somewhere in the 5th century, probably somewhere 450 to 430 years before the birth of Christ. That means that Malachi was a prophet to what we would probably most likely call the southern kingdom. Now reconstituted. Now regathered in Jerusalem, these tribes that came out of exile and now back into the promised land, the temple has been rebuilt and there have been a few waves of God's people who have come back from uh, from the east and have returned, but they're still mostly members of the southern kingdom, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin with a few Levites sprinkled in. A few of those northern tribes who have, who have made their way back into this southern place. But this is a distinct place, a, a distinct province now. They were known as the Judeans for the first time under their new Persian overlords. They would someday be called the Jews under Roman rule. They had been called Judah for 400 50 years after the division of the kingdoms, down until the exile, but now the Lord reaches beyond, back further beyond all of those names to the name that he gave to Jacob at the beginning. The name that signifies he who strives with God and prevails, the one who clings to the blessing giver. This is the word of the Lord to his covenant people, to Israel. I have loved you. I have always loved you. I have loved you in all of your circumstances and in all of your sufferings and in all of your divisions and all of your exile and all of your release and your reclamation of your inheritance. I have loved you, he says. And because this word is what this word claims to be, it means that this ought to be the standard that defines how Israel sees herself. This ought to be the standard that defines how she evaluates her relationship with her sovereign Savior. You know, there are abusers, right? There there are manipulators who speak soft words with their lips while they strike with hard hands. There are men who say things like, I love you. I'll protect you. I'll cherish you with empty intention. There are words that you hear that you recognize must be heard with a healthy skepticism, a sort of protective distance when the words come in your direction. But these words do not come from a heart of sin and deception and manipulation. These words come from the Holy One of Israel. These come from the God with whom there is no shifting or shadow. They come from the Lord, whose scripture tells us does not change and cannot lie and will not allow his word to be broken. And that means that this word comes to God's people with a challenge of faith. The Lord is speaking where his people can hear him. And he's speaking a word of covenant love. And the question is, will they believe him? Will they take the Lord at his word? There are always mitigating circumstances, aren't there? There are ups and downs, there are disappointments, there's loss, there's loneliness, there's temptation to sin. There's always God's word declared on the one hand and our lived experience on the other. And God's saints trapped in the middle trying to reconcile and trying to align what God has spoken with what we have seen. And the question is when God speaks, when he defines his covenant love for you, will you take him at his word? Well, for Israel under Malachi, the answer was no. The rest of verse 2 sets up the major tension in this passage. It also sets up the backdrop for our second point, God's mercy shown. God has spoken his love, and now his people demand proof. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's a classic case of he said, they said. God declares reality in the hearing of his people, but they're so focused on their own evaluations that God's word of love bounces off of them like a golf ball dropped onto a granite hillside. Do you remember the first time that you said, I love you, to that special someone? Do you wonder what it will be like someday when there's someone worth saying it to? And all the anxiety and all the butterflies of the time leading up to that moment uh, to saying that phrase, you wonder how it will be received. Does she feel the same way I feel about her? Will he return my affection that I express to him? And it's practically unthinkable that you could get to that point, to saying I love you, only to be answered with the words that God's unbelieving people give to their Lord. It is a deflection. Peter Adams says that it is a hard-hearted response that could easily kill a marriage or end a friendship. The Lord speaks his love, and his people say, prove it. How have you loved us? Give us a few examples, why don't you? Without making excuses for their sin and their unbelief, if you know the situation, In post-exile Judea, you might understand where some of this is coming from. You could guess, at least, what's in their hearts. Remember that Malachi ministered not at the beginning of the return of the exiles. At the beginning of the return of the exiles, there was hope. There was a new thing. God is leading them back. A hope in what the Lord might do. But Malachi didn't minister at the beginning of the return. He ministered a hundred years on. When the people are waiting... And waiting, and waiting for God's promises of goodness and prosperity to be fulfilled, and seeing not a whole lot of what they're waiting for. Malachi ministered after all God's promises about Zion came through Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2, God promised that Jerusalem would overflow with people, with all of their provisions. Zechariah chapter 8, God promised that the nations would stream to Jerusalem. They would flock to the temple to entreat the favor of the Lord of hosts. Zechariah chapter 9, God promised a king. Someone who would ride in on the foal of the colt of a donkey. Someone who would come and bring peace, who would rule from sea to sea, who would work a mighty victory through the tribes of Judah. But here they are now. The time of Malachi, another 60 years later, and the temple is still a sad shadow of what it once was under Solomon. The Persians are still in control. The people are still just scraping by. Judea, still just the size of a postage stamp, is still surrounded by enemies and antagonists on every side. And the sum total is that when the Lord pens a sonnet to them, he says, how do I love thee? The people respond by saying, you could begin by counting a few of the ways. Here again is proof that the God who actually is, is far better than the God we are prone to anticipate or expect. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And what do you think is the response that most post-Christian New England skeptics uh, expect to find from the quote-unquote vengeful God of the Old Testament? How do you think most of the, uh, the unbelieving skeptics expect to open the Old Testament and find God responding to that kind of challenge of his covenant love? Well, they expect to find destruction, don't they? That if you trifle with this God, your life is forfeit. And Maybe that's what some of you would expect if you didn't already know the end of the story. And instead, the God who actually is condescends. He stoops low. He's gracious enough to answer the challenge that is posed to him. He puts his mercy for Israel on display. And again, God's proof of his mercy is also unexpected. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. This is a language that most modern readers of the Bible tend to choke on. Because if the unbeliever expects God to be vengeful, the, the modern American Christian expects God to be nice. And a nice God would never hurt or, or hate anyone or anything, would he? Yet that is exactly what God says. He says that his love for Jacob is displayed through his hatred for Esau. Now how can these things be? Now we need to recognize that love and hate in the Bible are different than than just the vague feeling we attach to them today. It's not just about affection or, or animosity. When we look at hate and love in the Bible, especially from God, it's about action. God keeps His love. God shows His love. God maintains His love for thousands of generations. He pours out His hatred on the objects of His wrath. We also need to remember that God's hatred is not tainted by sin the way our human hatred almost always is. God's hatred is an expression of perfect justice. God's hatred is holy, it is pure, it is righteous, it is good. God declares his hatred on what is destined for destruction. Proverbs tells us there's six things the Lord hates. Seven, they're an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God's hatred is exercised in the destruction of the wicked and their wickedness. And in the case of Edom, the other name for Esau, The Lord says that his hatred is poured out in the fact that he has laid waste his country, left his inheritance to the jackals of the desert. This is decreation language. It's very similar, actually, to much of the language that the Lord puts against his own covenant people, Israel. Take Isaiah, for example. You can find any number of instances where the Lord says he will turn over the land of Israel and leave it to the jackals and the ostriches and the owls in the wastelands. But well, There's a difference, isn't there? And the difference between the way the Lord sometimes says that he will leave the towns of Israel desolate and the way that he says he will live Edom uninhabited is God's determination to make a complete end of Esau with nothing left. And so in verse 4, there's another clash between uh, God's evaluation and human evaluation. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Indeed, this judgment was already in process in the days of Malachi. Malachi. Within about a hundred years from the time of this prophecy, it would be fulfilled, and the nation of Edom would effectively be erased from the world. It would be swallowed up by invaders and occupiers until there was absolutely nothing left. This may seem to us like a strange way for God to show his love to Israel by, by displaying his hatred toward Esau. But remember what we learned at the end of our studies through Joel, what Pastor Andrew helped us to hear just last week. When Babylon overthrew Jerusalem in 586 B.C., it was the Edomites who joined in the action. They joined in by capturing the The fleeing Israelite refugees, they joined in by selling them into slavery to the surrounding nations. They joined in by slaughtering the vulnerable. They joined in by swooping in to snatch up the land that was left behind by the exiles. And so when the Lord says that he's going to be angry with Edom forever, he's declaring to Israel that he will love Israel through retribution, through protection. The Lord is going to love His covenant people through defending them against those who sought their destruction. He will turn the evil of their oppressors back upon their own heads and He will make a complete end of their injustice. That's one of the ways that we can understand this as a a show of God's love. But really the key to how this hatred highlights God's love and mercy toward Israel is not in that chilling statement of verse 4. It's in the seemingly innocuous statement in verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Indeed, he is. In fact, more than a brother, they're twins. Jacob and Esau shared a womb. They came into the same family. They came into the same parents and property. They shared the same prospects. In fact, if anything, Esau had the upper hand as the son who was born first. And yet, as Paul points out, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, that when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so the point of pointing out that Jacob and Esau were brothers is actually showcasing the sovereign choice that made Jacob a recipient of God's covenant love. The sovereign choice that showered mercy upon Jacob even though he was undeserving just like his brother Esau. Because if you know the history of Jacob, if you know how Israel ended up in that exile to begin with, you know that Israel and Esau and all their descendants, humanly speaking, were not that different from one another at all. And so the point of this this love and this hatred is not to show us that one brother has earned righteousness and the other has deserved destruction. The point is that there is nothing in heel-grabbing Jacob that made him more lovable than his brother. Nothing aside from God's good pleasure to place his covenant love upon him. same could be said for Jacob's descendants. The same could be said for the apostles. The same could be said for every missionary you've ever known and supported. The same could be said for you. The Lord has declared a day that is coming when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, even Jesus Christ the righteous one. A day is coming. The Lord has declared an end to all wickedness and all deceit and all slander and all sin. He has promised to execute perfect justice. On the vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And what is it in you, dear Christian, that makes you more acceptable or more beloved or more righteous in his sight when that day comes? What is it in you that differentiates you other than God's purpose on you? What is it except for the fact that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons? Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, as we heard from Ephesians today. What claim do you have except for the fact that in him we have redemption through his blood? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace and so Jacob and all his spiritual descendants all the unworthy children of Abraham by faith become object lessons of God's undeserved mercy. In his statement through Moses concerning Pharaoh, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so when the Lord speaks his love to his people and they say, how have you loved us? He says, do you see the distinction I'm making even though you don't deserve it? Two themes running through these verses. The theme of God's love spoken over his people and the theme of God's mercy shown to undeserving sinners like Jacob the heel grabber. through Malachi, the Lord declares that the day will come that this love and mercy will lead where God's love and mercy always lead to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, do you see the corrective? Do you see the answer to the challenge that they issue to the Lord? He is going to wrest from them a confession That he has done exactly what he said he was doing. That he is the one who's loved his people. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. There's a day coming when Israel's discouragement and doubt would be swallowed up by sight. And the undeniable evidence of God's preserving power would be seen, not just by Israel, but among the nations of the earth. That was the original intent of God's dealing with Pharaoh, by the way, the first time that that phrase shows up, the Lord speaking of those upon whom he will have mercy and those whom he will harden. And why did he do it? So that the nations would see. So that the people would know. So that the people would know that God makes a distinction between his people and the objects of his wrath. That was the way that God promised to deal with Israel as well through Malachi. Showing them what the Lord will do for those who receive his word and wait upon him. And what about you, dear believer? What will be the result in the day when the clouds are rolled back? When the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, what will be your refrain on that day? Will you join in with Israel and say that great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel? Or will you join in the chorus of elders and angels and living beings, and say to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's the same song with different words, isn't it? Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What is it that makes you deserving of being able to sing such a song? Except God's love spoken over you. His preserving power shown in calling you to himself. The Lord makes known his goodness and his love upon his people through preserving them. And calling them. And placing his love upon them. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we thank you for this, your word through Malachi. We pray that you indeed would cut us to the heart, divide between joint and bone, marrow and sinew. We pray that you would uh, lay us bare before you, show us the deficiencies of our own faith and the challenges we raise against you. But O Lord, we pray for your mercy, which we do not deserve, but you are able to give by your sovereign good pleasure. Call many to yourself. Make us your people. Place your love upon us. Thank you for Christ our Savior, the one who is the proof of your love for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.